Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, over these last 14 months, everyone's lives have been disrupted to some degree, some uh, extraordinarily so. And that's true for corporate corporations as well. And it's been fascinating to, to kind of observe how different companies uh, manage their way through the pandemic, how different boards of directors uh, help their management teams navigate through these times. So it's a great time to speak with our next guest, Dambisa Moyo. She is a global economist. economist. She currently serves on the boards of Chevron and 3M, and she has a new book out entitled How Boards Work and How They Can Work Better in a Chaotic World. Dambisa, thanks so much for joining us here you know, we don't have much hindsight here because we're just at the very early stages of coming out on the other side of this pandemic. But in general, how do you think certain boards, uh, I guess, reacted to and then maybe planned for strategically how to, you know, evolve in, in this crazy world we're in now? Yeah, so the truth is um, a number of companies found themselves in a pretty stable and solid position, um, you know, to the extent that um, from the financial perspective of their balance sheet, from the operational perspective um, in terms of safety and just keeping the proverbial lights on. And then, of course, from the strategic aspect, so making sure that the business can survive through challenging times, there are a number of companies that actually did perfectly fine. Um, the bigger issue is, of course, there are a number of companies in the U.S., about 14 to 15 percent of American corporations um, that are incredibly vulnerable. They're known as zombie companies. By that, I mean that they don't have enough um, even uh, interest, uh, sorry, the cash flows to cover the interest payments on their debt. And they were, of course, vulnerable from a balance sheet perspective. Many companies struggled in terms of that switch from um, sort of bricks and mortar operations into uh, being deployed uh, from the remotely um, and, of course, the strategic questions remain. I mean, we're seeing a lot of consolidation in the markets right now. But I, I do think that uh, this this experience will separate the sort of uh, what we used to say back in the day, the man from the boys. Um, so I think it has been uh, quite a, a, a jarring experience for many companies. I guess ESG is – do we consider it the most important issue going forward for boards? Well, listen, it's become an existential crisis. Um, ESG is part and parcel of how companies are thinking about themselves longer term. And you know, obviously, we're talking about environmental, social and governance issues. Um, you know, I think that the broader environment remains quite challenged in terms of economic growth beyond this year's rebound. Um, how are we thinking about technology, demographic shifts, income inequality, climate change, all these aspects? are very much front and center of the minds of, uh, of board members, but also uh, CEOs and, and business leaders as they think about how to navigate not just the post-COVID environment in the short term, but longer term, how we, it is we're going to run these businesses um, in, in the longer term in a, in a very challenged world um, with China rising, deglobalization, digitization, et cetera. I'm curious how a board, how a company like Chevron approaches that, because Clearly, Chevron's business is fossil fuels. On the other hand, it's not like it would be would be bad if they just everyone stopped making oil, right? All of a sudden, there needs we need these products. So, how does a company like Chevron approach ESG? Well, I think it's important to put this in context. Um, you know, on the one hand, there are people who are 
pushing very aggressively for defunding uh, energy companies. And, and I think that there's a, a missed opportunity here because they tend to over uh, overshadow, overlook the point that there are 1.5 billion people around the world who've got no access to energy in a cost-effective and sustainable way. And it's just not reasonable uh, for society to leave those people um, in energy poverty, given the, the broader macroeconomic risks. But just in terms of how the best companies and corporations are viewing the ESG agenda, it's not just about risk mitigation and thinking about greenhouse gas uh, intensity and thinking about uh, carbon uh, intensity. All those things are critically important. But we also have to think about investing and looking at ways to continue to grow these businesses, but also to grow the global economy and make sure that we continue to progress in, in terms of human progress more generally. So I think that whatever the issue is in terms of ESG, not just climate change, but issues of worker advocacy, racial diversity, of course, gender diversity as well, um, concerns around China's rise, uh, you know, areas of obesity, voter rights, all of these things have to be uh, looked at in a, in a more sort of thoughtful and constructive and pragmatic way. And that's, uh, that's what I think the best corporations are doing. Dumbi, so based upon your experience, um, what are your views of globalization? There was arguably since the end of World War II, the the world has become smaller. Uh, it's become a much more global market um, over the last 50 years. But then you know, under the prior administration, there was a move back to make America first, onshoring some businesses. Um, how do you view, as you sit on those the boards of two global companies, how do you think about globalization? How does corporate America think about globalization? Well, look, the textbooks are very clear. Theoretically, globalization, and by that I mean um, the movement of trade and in, in trade of goods and services, um, capital flows, moving capital in what we traditionally call the carry trade, borrowing in places like London and New York at low interest rates, investing in high risk adjusted, high uh, return places like Brazil or South Africa. Um, you know, looking at the immigration movement of people across borders, global standards, global cooperation, all these five elements of globalization. There is absolutely no doubt about it from historical evidence. Um, that these uh, aspects, when they are at full function, um, do contribute to broadening economic growth, the sort of expansion of the GDP pie and human progress. That being said, we have to be aware and sensitive to the fact that there have been pockets of the population around the world um, that have been left behind. Um, and that's where the schism and the challenges emerge um, for globalization, as we have seen. It's led to Brexit. It's led to the American uh, America First type of policies. And my view is that, again, from a very pragmatic sense, um, globalization should be pursued, but understanding that we need to uh, make sure that everyone is participating in this expansion. And that requires a little bit more uh, temerity, but also thoughtfulness with respect to how we approach uh, uh, globalization. It can't be full hog, as we know it in the textbooks. Um, but at the same time, I think we, we should not be pursuing a, a very aggressive, progressive era. All right. Dambisa, thanks very much for joining us. Dambisa Moyo there. She is a global economist currently serving on the boards of Chevron and 3M. Great to get her views on these issues. Also, she's one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. This is Bloomberg. We got some economic data out today. U.S. housing starts. They fell by more than forecast in April, suggesting that supply chain constraints 
and rising material costs continue to hold builders back. Let's get some more color on the housing business and the construction business. We do that with Dr. Jack Chuang, CEO of James Hardy Industries. Uh, that is a publicly traded company. Uh, Dr. Truong, thanks so much for joining us here. We've been hearing about supply chain shortages across a number of industries here as the world's economies begin to ramp up. Talk to us about those supply chain challenges in the housing market. Uh, good morning, Paul. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, you know, certainly within the housing industry relative to new construction is that um, we, we, we have experienced a really the, a shortage of lumber um, as well as the escalating prices in lumber. Um, and then compounding the, the issue, too, is that there's also a lack of labor, uh, skilled labor that, um, that, that really allows the uh, builders to, to complete those um, new uh, housing starts. Um, so that's really been um, an issue that, uh, as an industry, uh, particularly in new construction, um, that, um, that have been um, plagued with during the past six months. So it's not about, I mean, you want to build uh, as much as, as possible. Um, you you want to get out there, get the land, you'll build on spec, all no problem, right? Because the demand is there, it's just that you don't have the stuff or the people that you need. Um, that's correct, Paul. I mean, the, the demand has been very strong. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just to give you a little perspective, I mean, um, there is, um, during the past decade, if, if you look at the uh, total uh, new single-family constructions um, in, the, in the U.S., uh, during the past decade, there's only about uh, 7 mil million uh, homes, uh, single-family homes that, that were built. And, and this was uh, really compared to 11 million homes that were built uh, every decade in, in the previous five decades. Um, so certainly... You know, there is a, there's a shortage of um, new uh, single-family homes in the U.S., um, and uh, what, the, what the trend that we see right now is really just uh, the market is catching up. The, the, uh, the um, demand is really uh, strong, and then supply is really uh, trying to catch up. You know, the one thing I, we've been hearing a lot about, but I didn't even think about it for the construction business, is labor shortages. So talk to us about that. I mean, it's one thing for... McDonald's or to be raising its minimum wage or Amazon to be raising its minimum wage to attract workers. But I always thought, you know, housing construction jobs were pretty good paying jobs. Talk to us about the, the labor aspect. Yeah, you know, it's a, um, it is a, it's, it's a good paying jobs, but, you know, within construction, uh, because of all, all the different type of uh, um, jobs that are going on in terms of you need someone to who have to uh, feel the, um, the con concrete to form the foundation. You need a skill that really do the roofing, the, the skills person that uh, that really put the siding on, the skill person to put on the interior of the home, the electrician, and so on. So, so it's really you need to have different type of skill labor to really complete the home. Um, so, it's, um, you know, with the uh, since the, the last bubble uh, in, um, in in the housing crisis a decade ago. Um, the, the industry has lost um, a, a few of those uh, labor. And then certainly during, during the past few years with the restriction on the immigration um, coming from, uh, from south of uh, the country, uh, we certainly saw uh, a, a, um, a lack of that labor as well. So it's really a confluence of two factors that really affect the, um, the, the uh, new home construction in the U.S. today, uh, the lack of lumber and then also the lack of skilled labor. But if you're 
able to get more for homes, I guess you're able to then offer more pay. And would that help you attract more labor or is it, or are they just simply not there? Um, it's, it certainly it helps, but it's not going to be able to attract uh, um, enough labor to, um, to complete homes. And it's certainly, like I mentioned before, uh, with the lack of lumber, it's also um, uh, slow it down as well. But, you know, how, how we think about it, James Hardy, is that, you know, uh, a third of our business is really exposed to new construction, but uh, the other two-thirds is really exposed to uh, the renovation and, uh, and then the market. And, and for that market, is is quite strong. Um, it is, you know, with the COVID um, condition that's happening right now, you see a lot more uh, folks that stay at home and work from home. And so they, they, uh, they really um, having a be- beautiful home and then uh, extension of the home will be a key part of, of, of the growth in that sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and also with that sector, as you renovate your home, uh, the need for lumber is not as critical as it is in new yep. construction. All right. Really interesting insight. And it was great to get uh, your take on what's going on in the industry. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. Dr. Jack Truong, the CEO of James Hardy Industries. Get over now to David Dietz. He's the managing principal and senior portfolio strategist at PPAC, Private Wealth Management. They got about $10 billion in assets under management. David, I guess the key question uh, from 35,000 feet is, do you see rapid growth um, in the reopening, and is that accompanied by, you know, real temporary, uh, real permanent inflation, or is it more of a transient inflation issue? Well, Matt, you put your finger on the the sixty four thousand dollar question. You know, at this point, no one really knows. I think we are seeing rapid growth, notwithstanding uh, the housing start report today, uh, with this economy opening up, opening up as the pandemic wanes. We've got huge fiscal stimulus from uh, various packages, and there could be a an infrastructure bill on the way. And of course, we have record low interest rates. All of that is a real tailwind behind the economy. Now, last week we had two reports, consumer prices, producer prices, which suggested much faster than expected inflation. But when you do the deep dive, Matt, you see that those alone don't answer your question because of what was driving the increase. It was uh, prices on used cars. It was prices on car rentals and prices on hotel stays. You know, a year ago, those industries were left for dead under the lockdown. Of course, now, for example, the used cars were up 10 percent, biggest since 1953. But something tells us that a year from now, we're not going to see another 10 percent uh, hike in used car prices. We think it was a temporary thing. So, who knows? You know, this is this is the question. Um, you can't rule either scenario completely out, Matt. David, we're just finishing up what has been a very strong earnings reporting season. And a lot of folks are saying, boy, we certainly needed that. We need more of it because this is an expensive market. This is a market that maybe needs to grow into its multiple. How do you think about valuation here? Well, valuations are at the upper bounds of what we've historically seen, uh, close to 22 times forward earnings. Uh, And when you look at other metrics like price to sales, like the value of the entire stock market relative to the GDP, we're off the charts. On the other hand, it's all justifiable because of these low interest rates. But we also have, uh, as you pointed out, 
great corporate earnings growth. And I think we're going to see Q2 going to, again, have great earnings growth because, of course, the comparisons are going to be versus the second quarter last year when we were virtually on lockdown. But then you're going to see still positive but slowing earnings growth in the second half of this year and positive but, again, slower growth next year in 2022. And that's where the rubber is going to hit the road. Will that earnings growth continue to be sufficient to withstand these higher uh, multiples? I think if interest rates continue low, yes. If not, it's going to be uh, a stock bigger's market. Oh, that's the point. I mean, the, this market is priced for a um, no more lockdowns, right? A total and complete reopening, and b um, no interest rate increases from the Fed, or really even uh, tapering until what the end of twenty twenty two. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. And so the way we've been advised, you know, the, but the problem is, of course, Matt, is if not stocks, then what? Cryptos, SPACs, money markets, you know, there's no easy choices here. So I think we're continuing to stay, stay, say, stay the course, but perhaps tilt your portfolio to those areas of the market which have not done so well for the last 10 years, but with a rapidly expanding economy, with interest rates starting to move up, with a whiff of inflation, could do better. Those are your cyclical names, your value names. Those may be the best bets going forward. All right, Dan, I know you're not, not afraid to talk names here. Given the backdrop that you see out there in terms of inflation, in terms of rates, what are some of the names you guys are doing some work on these days? Yeah, absolutely. So we like a name like Allstate. I mean, you know, here's a company at about 10 times earnings uh, with a yield of about 2.5%. So you're getting a full 1% more than that 10-year treasury. Uh, they've had better than expected claims experience because, of course, no one was driving. But there's no reason why that company can't continue to grow with a prosperous economy. And, of course, they're only paying out about 20% of their profits uh, in the form of dividends so they can crank that dividend up. It seems if someone said, well, Five years from now, you're going to be better off in the 10-year treasury. You're going to be better off in a company like Allstate. Allstate looks good. Um, uh, you know, we also like uh, a company like General Motors because, of course, you know, uh, to the extent that the semiconductor uh, supply permits, they're just mm. selling cars as fast as they can make them. GM, very low valuation. They, too, like Tesla, of course, moving to the EV space, but they're not priced as though they're going to be a big EV player. But, of course, they will be ultimately so we think gm makes a lot of sense here uh, just got about 30 seconds you still like viacom cbs it's a hot day for them today um <laughs> but you know this is one this is one of the stocks that bill wang got burned on well, well, yeah, he did. I mean, the stock got up to close to 100. Viacom quite astutely sold stock to institutional investors at 85. What were they thinking? Well, guess what? Is it better by now when it's in the low 40s? And I think the um, appeal of the entertainment and media and content stocks was underscored, first, of course, with the Warner Media and Discovery combination. And, of course, today we just learned that uh, Amazon is looking uh, at the MGM Studios yep. for their content and so forth, so it makes a lot of sense. All right, David, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate you, appreciate your thoughts on the market and the names you're looking at. David Dietz, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist at PPEC Private Wealth Management, located in beautiful, bucolic Summit, New Jersey. This is Bloomberg. All right, the news of the day, I think, is, you know, as it relates to global Wall Street, is what's going on at J.P. Morgan. They're putting two 
of the contenders vying to succeed Chief Executive Jamie Dimon in charge of its sprawling consumer banking operation. Let's get some color on that. We bring in Allison Williams. She's a senior banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's been following this industry for decades, both on the buy side and the sell side. She knows all the players here. So, Allison, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, Jamie Dimon is not going anywhere soon, is he? But I guess they're still trying to think about some succession plans. Is that what's going on here? Sure. So, you know, Jamie Dimon's uh, infamous line is every time someone asks him how long he's going to stay on, he always says five more years, and he <laughs> says that every year. Um, so uh, there'll be conferences in the coming weeks, and we'll see if he uh, continues to say that. So, so the big news really is, um, you know, obviously uh, the promotion of the two uh, former CFOs to head the consumer bank. Um, you know, I think because people have been watching – um, especially Marianne um, Lake, who is the longtime CFO. She was uh, replaced uh, by Jen Peepsack, um more recently. Um, and so I think, you know, all eyes are on these two women to see if one of them will become the contender. Um, however, for the moment, um, Pinto is really the, the sole successor. So um, just, just to hopefully I'm being clear that um, Pinto and Smith were basically the co-leaders uh, of the bank. Smith is retiring, um, which puts Pinto in the heir apparent position. But I think all eyes are on um, the two former uh, CFOs who were promoted to head the consumer bank to see if one of those uh, women will rise to be the new CEO. So just to recap, then we're saying Pinto is the successor, is the heir apparent right now. But we're watching Marianne Lake and Jennifer Peepsack in case they, what, knock Pinto off his pedestal? Well, it depends, right? So, like, let's say that Diamond steps down tomorrow. Pinto is obviously the heir apparent. Um, you know, if you went back a few years ago, um, it would have been Pinto or Smith. I think that, um, you know, putting Marianne Lake and Jen Peepsack in charge of the consumer bank sort of puts them into a runoff, right? So... Um, let's say Jamin, so Jamie Diamond steps down tomorrow, Pinto's in charge. Uh, we wait five more years, as Jamie always says. Over the next couple of years, we would expect um, that either Lake or Peepsack uh, rises to be the um, leader of the consumer bank, um, and then there's sort of a runoff between <laughs> that leader and Pinto. Allison, what does the market think about the tenure or or the – I guess the the future with Jamie Dimon. I mean, obviously Jamie Dimon is is you know rock star CEO has delivered for shareholders. Um, I presume shareholders are extraordinarily supportive of him. In theory, do they want him to stay as long as he wants to and as long as he continues to perform? They do, um, but I think they also do recognize um, that uh, there is a very strong bench. I would say that you know all three of the people that um, we discussed are very uh, well respected. Um, on Wall Street, um, Pinto and Lake perhaps a little bit better known because of um, their more forward-facing roles over a longer period of time. Is he the most beloved major <laughs> Wall Street CEO? I mean, the most revered. I don't know what what word to use, but he's basically the man to watch on Wall Street, right? Well, yeah, he's the he's the only CEO to manage through both of the recent crises, right? So um, he, he managed through the prior crisis. 
Um, you know, Lloyd Blankfein had, had stepped down and paved the way for Solomon, which was actually a, a good transition period, right, because then Solomon was in place. And I think that's, that's sort of what they wanted is to have the new CEO in place when the next crisis happened. So, and I would uh, remind you that actually in the beginning of this crisis about a year ago, Jamie Dimon was in the hospital and uh, Pinto and Smith were actually running the bank as co-CEOs for a period of time. So, um, you know, now uh, Pinto will be the one that has that experience going forward. All right, Alice, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. You must be very busy today considering uh, everything that that we're um, up against. Allison Williams, Senior Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.